Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 36. Let's hear what God says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames in the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, 
It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the, the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. What is Christianity actually all about? What is its core idea? Well, to put it another way, we've just had a Thanksgiving for Olivia um, Lakisa. What do Maxim and Laura, as Christian parents, hope for her? What will it mean for Olivia to be a Christian child growing up to be a Christian woman? Now, some may think um, that will involve her going to church on Sundays. Uh, it might also involve her having a moral framework so that she will grow up to be kind to other people. It might also involve her having a community, hopefully, a community of other Christians that will be in her life, uh, friends and family that she has through the church. Now, hopefully, all of those things are true, but none of them is the central thing. What is Christianity actually about? Well, the answer is right here in this passage in Exodus, which is probably a strange passage if you've not come across it before. There are things in there that feel culturally distant, potentially offensive. But it's right here that we see the center of the Christian message in the Passover. We're reading the book of Exodus. Exodus is a story of rescue. It's a story of a people who have been in slavery, brought out of slavery to freedom. And Christianity, in such, is a, as such, is about a rescue. But perhaps in nowhere else in the book of Exodus is it clearer than in this passage that we've got today, reading about the Passover, because it is here that we see what kind of rescue that Christianity offers. And it kind of speaks beyond the thousand-year age in which it was written, right into our day-to-day. -day. It speaks to us. It speaks right into our lives. The Bible tells us that there is a rescue that we all desperately need. But it's a rescue that all of us can have. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Exodus 12. And in it, we'll see the beating heart of the Christian message. So we're going to see three things. Uh, what is it we're rescued from? How we get rescued? And then what we should do when we're rescued? So, first of all, um, 
what we're rescued from. Now, if you're just coming in in the middle of the story, let me just recap what's happening because there's been a lot of drama so far in Exodus. So God's people, the Israelites, have been in slavery for 400 years, generations worth of slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians have oppressed them. They've tried to kill them. They've put them in grinding poverty and hardship. And yet God has heard the cries of the Israelites praying to them, praying to him for help. And he has brought into the story Moses and Aaron, two Israelites. He's revealed himself to Moses. He said, I am the Lord. He's described himself as the I am. That's what the Lord means. The self-sufficient God, the all-powerful God, the only true God that there is. And he said to Moses, you and your brother Aaron are going to be my servants. I'm going to bring Israel out of Egypt, but you guys are going to be the spokespeople. You're going to be the means in which Israel will be saved. And so he sends um, Moses and Aaron into the very court of the Egyptian king himself. They go towards Pharaoh, and they're to speak on God's behalf. And they say to Pharaoh on God's behalf, let Israel go. You must let them free. Pharaoh refuses. And so it becomes this kind of showdown in the narrative. In the red corner, you've got um, the Lord speaking through Moses. In the blue corner, you've got Pharaoh and the Egyptian power and its religious system. Who's going to win? Well, Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go. He's stubborn. And so what happens is God, in response, sends a series of plagues on Egypt. The Nile turns to blood. There are infestations of frogs and flies. But, they, but, you know, Pharaoh keeps digging in. He doubles down. He refused to let the people go. And so the plagues get more and more severe. They even turn life-threatening. We've got some of the plagues on there. There you go. Um, so there's frogs. There's gnats. There's flies. Livestock die. There's hail. And there's locusts. There's even frightening darkness. And God sends these plagues to judge the Egyptians. But he also does it so he, he can show them who he is. So they will know who is the true God and be waking up out of their delusions. But Pharaoh will not relent. Time and time again, he, will, he gets stubborn. He does not let the people go. And so today we look at that final plague, number 10, the death of the firstborn. This is where everything has been heading in the story. Before the plagues even happened, Moses... Um, Knock us back, Frank, cheers. Um, The Lord had said this to Moses back in chapter 4. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. In the ancient world, to be the firstborn son was to be the preeminent son. You would be the one with most of the inheritance, You would be the one who was looking after your brothers and sisters when your parents were incapable of doing so. You had a special status. And God says that the entire Israelite nation is his firstborn son. And because Pharaoh has oppressed his firstborn son, he will oppress, he will kill theirs. It's a severe plague, a severe promise. Again, Pharaoh um, does not relent. And so this plague comes and hits them hard. Now, the final plague, it, firstborn, it stands out for a number of reasons. 
First of all, it's the first plague where there is inevitable human death. Secondly, um, if you look, at, if you read Exodus 12, all of the, the, there's a long passage, there's a lot of real estate in the book devoted to this plague, where the other plagues are kind of skipped over a lot quickly. It's as if the writer says, look at this one, it's really important. But the plague stands out from the others for another key way, and I want you to notice this. The Israelites are not excluded from this plague. They're not exempt. So in all the other plagues, or for the majority of them, they're not affected. So think of hail, for example. There's a plague of hail in chapter 9. Huge hailstones that kill people and animals. It's a terrifying event that happens on the Egyptians, but it says in chapter 9, verse 26, the only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. So the Israelites were free. They didn't have to worry about the plague. They could sit in their gardens with their feet up, safe from harm, whilst their oppressors received God's judgment. And you can imagine, you know, if you were an Israelite at the time and you're seeing all these plagues hit Egypt, after you've been oppressed for 400 years, you and your fathers and your mothers, you could quite enjoy that, couldn't you? You could enjoy looking out on the Egyptians, getting their comeuppance. It's like, great, the revolution is here. Let's watch our oppressors get taken down. Let's sit up and relax. But the Israelites can't do that this time. They have instructions, actions that they have to take. They can't just sit back. In fact, they have to act, because if they don't, they will die as well. And so when God gives the Israelites these instructions in which they have to carry out, it's as if he's saying to them, friends, if I am going to come in judgment, if I am going to come and bring death, you are not going to be safe either. You need to act as well. And so in this plague, Israel must learn that they don't just need rescue from Pharaoh. They don't just need rescue from slavery. They actually need rescue from God. They need rescue from death. And the fact that both Egypt and Israel are liable for for death in this passage, it points to a universal issue, which is that all human beings are. To which you think, that's a bit strong, isn't it? Like death, you were reading the story, and you come across the destroyer, like the destroyer. What's all this about? Well, God demands justice in his world. We spoke last week, didn't we, about our passion as a culture for justice, particularly about, against those who abuse their power. It's something that's very, it felt very strongly in our society. I was struck reading the other day a newspaper article about Jimmy Savile. And Jimmy Savile, if you don't know, the veteran TV presenter, after his death, it came to pass, it came to light that over decades he had um, abused, sexually abused hundreds of people, many children at the time. And this newspaper article was talking about a documentary that was out about him. It was reviewing it. Now, this was a popular left-leaning secular newspaper. Okay, this is not Christianity Today. A left-leaning secular newspaper. What was the final sentence in that article? The writer said this. Let's hope hell exists. Let's hope hell exists. Hell! We want justice. Justice. 
We're a culture that wants justice. But there's an uncomfortable question that this Passover story brings to us, and it's this. What, what if we're liable to justice? I want you to imagine that for all your life, you had a little record around your neck, and it recorded everything that you'd ever said or done, particularly when it came to your own standards, when you'd ever said, oh, I can't believe someone did that, or people should never do this, or you shouldn't act like this. It recorded all of them, logged them. But it also recorded all of your actions, all the things you'd ever said, all the things you'd ever done. And then one day, all these logs are brought to light, and on one hand, we've got all the standards in which you've expressed you think people should keep to, all the things they should do, And then on the other, they also show all the things you've actually done, all the things you've said, all the ways you've treated other people, good and bad. Would your actions, would your words match your standards? If you're me, I think the answer is probably no. We can't even keep our own standards, can we? What about the standards of God, the God who made us? You know, collectively, all of us turn away from God. He is the maker and giver of life. Yet we don't acknowledge him. We turn away from him. And it's like humanity shares this this darkness in our hearts that's common to all of us. It knows no race or gender or any boundaries. All human beings share it. We walk away from our maker and we live selfish lives that fail to acknowledge him. Now, that darkness, when it said it's worst, flowers into something like the sort of unspeakable crimes that someone like Jimmy Savile committed. But you know, the seeds are in us all. That's what the Bible says. We commit many oppressions every day. We fail our own standards. How much more would we fail God's? And the truth is, the Bible says, because God cares so much about justice, one day he's going to deal with it all. He will hold all of us to account. And that means that humanity is on a collision course with God's justice. And see, Israel has to learn this. That's what the Passover is for. They had to learn that even though they had been oppressed themselves, that did not mean that they were righteous. Just because they were victims, they were still open and open to God's justice. It's the same with us. It's the same with us. You know, we have all sorts of ideas, don't we, about what we need most in life and what society needs. You may be just consciously aware of struggles in your life, things that are hard. And when we think about what our society thinks our chief problems are, they've got a good list. Poverty, lack of education, dangerous ideologies, artificial intelligence, climate change. Now, all of these things are important. I'm not saying they don't matter at all. They do matter. And again, remember, God cares about the slavery that Israel was in. He cares about things um, that we face in, in our lives. But beyond this horizon, the horizon of the things we care about, there is another horizon, one that stretches into eternity. And the important question is this, friends. like, Where will you be in 100 years' time? Where will we be on the other side of God's justice? So the Lord says to Israel in the Passover, and he says the same thing to us today, I know there is much broken in this world, and I know that you worry about many things in this life, and those things matter, but where are you with me? So the message of Christianity is that we need rescue. 
What do we need rescue from? We need rescue from death, from God's justice. That's what we need to be rescued from. So how can we be rescued? The answer is this. If you read the Passover story, Israel are to be rescued through a substitute. Do you see that in the passage? So look at down with me, chapter 12. God gives these people instructions regarding this substitute, which is a lamb. So verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Then verse 5, the animals you choose must be, must be year-old males without defects, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So each family is to take little Dolly, the lamb, into their home for a few days. They get used to it. It's part of the family. And then they slaughter it and eat it and daub its blood on their doors. It's a grisly family activity, isn't it? But it signifies something so important. Look at verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. But, verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So God is going to go through every house in Egypt, striking the firstborn. But when he gets to Israelite houses where there's blood on the doors, the firstborn will not die in those houses. They will be rescued from that death. He will pass over those houses, hence the name Passover. Now the passage strongly implies that if the Israelites do not put the blood on their doors, they will experience Death of the firstborn themselves. Look at verse 22. The end of it. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. You've got to stay in your house. Because if you do not, your firstborn may die. So here's the thing, when God comes through Egypt on this night, in every house there is going to be a death. It's either going to be the death of a lamb, or it's going to be the death of a firstborn. And so for the Israelites, the lamb is a substitute for the firstborn. The lamb dies, so the firstborn son does not have to. And so as promised, God comes in judgment on Egypt, and the the results are severe. It says this, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Those are sobering sentences. And imagine being an Israelite firstborn son the next morning. You walk out of your house, happy to be awake, to have got it through the the night. You're outside, you hear perhaps the distant wailing, collective mourning 
of the Egyptians. You feel lucky to be alive. You turn around to walk back in your house and you see the blood that is on your doorframe. And you think, that could have been me. That blood could have been mine. Israel is rescued and the Egyptians are judged. And this is what tips Pharaoh over the edge. So verse 13, he tells the the Israelites that they are to flee. He even wants blessing by the end of it. And so this is how the Israelites leave Egypt, freed from slavery at last. But not just free from slavery, free from death. Because the lambs have taken their place. Now the story of the Passover has iconic status in Judaism an iconic status in Christianity, the writers of the Bible in the New Testament, the, time that was, uh, the documents that were written after the time of Jesus, saw the Passover as a vivid picture of Jesus and what he did in his death. The Passover, in fact, was there to point to Jesus. John the Baptist, he says this in John 1, look, pointing at Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover screams Jesus. That's what it does. And the Bible authors say that when Jesus was our substitute, when he came to earth and died as the sacrificial lamb in our place, that that was the greatest act of love that there has ever been. Talk is cheap when it comes to love. Doesn't it? Anyone can say, I love you, in a sort of serotonin-fueled haze. But love is most displayed in acts of sacrifice. Perhaps most clearly seen in a parent-child relationship. A key means of sacrificial love. You know, children, they change their parents' lives forever. It begins, doesn't it, with the sleepless nights, the exhaustion, the restricted schedules, the end of nights out apparently. You pour yourself out for them emotionally, physically, financially over many years. You do what they need. You do what's needed so that they can flourish. You worry about them when you see them in pain, when you hear about them being bullied at school, when you see them hurting. It's enough to break your heart in two. You get frustrated with them for their stupidity at times, their ignorance, their defiance. You see them sabotage themselves, and then you have to step in to save them from themselves with little to no thanks. And yet you do it anyway, because at least a part of you, even in your anger, still loves them. Now, not all of us have had the privilege of loving parents, but for those of us who have, it's a great blessing that we should not take for granted. You know, one day when Olivia is older, If she is wise, she will recognize the love that Maxim and Laura have given her and the sacrifices they have made for her. Real love makes sacrifices. And the Christian story centers on Jesus' death and resurrection, the act of sacrificial love. The one actually by which all others are measured. What is this story? The story of Jesus' death, the story of our rescue, is the story of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit seeing our self-sabotage 
seeing us turn away from him, being unjust, plunging ourselves into darkness and into his judgment. And though we deserve death, the Father and the Son collectively decide that the Son will come to earth, he will take on humanity, he will join us in the darkness. Jesus looks at us and he says, I will join them in the mess they've made. I will sacrifice myself for them. I will die the death they deserve. My blood will be shed for them. And I will rise again away from death and destruction into life that I might take them with me. That is love. And the father, the father sends his son, his firstborn son, He sends his son into the judgment of death so that we might be rescued and brought back. So the son is born born in in human um, flesh. He comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He's betrayed, unjustly tried, sentenced to death. As in the first Passover, blood is once again spilt on wood, not on the wood of a door, but this time the wood of a cross. And mysteriously in that moment, Jesus suffers not just the physical pain and agony, but the spiritual disconnection from God that we deserve. The full force of God's justice is unleashed on Jesus in that moment. When it could have been on us, he is our substitute. It's the greatest act of sacrificial love there's ever been. And this life, this rescue, then, is made available to any of us who will come and trust in Jesus. You know, the Israelites, what did they have to do? As an act of trust to receive the rescue, they just put the blood on their doors, didn't they? Why would blood, why would a lamb's blood on a door be enough to save them from the force of God's justice? It was an act of trust for them to do it. In the same way, Jesus calls us to trust in him, to come to him, to humble ourselves, to receive him, to believe that what he has done is enough to save us from God's justice. He offers himself to us. That is the Christian story. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's an amazing act of love. So we've seen how we get rescued. Finally, what should we do when we're rescued. Now, if you look down at the passage again, chapter 12, you'll notice, particularly if you've been reading Exodus up until now, that it's a little bit disjointed. You'd feel like this is not great storytelling because in the middle of this drama, in the middle of this escalating series of plagues and Egypt getting what what it deserves, it's kind of intercut with instructions about festivals that kind of come out of nowhere. We're told in in the middle of the story about how to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 14. And it's a little bit awkward. You sort of think, well, this is, why is this here? Can I get back to the story, please? I want to see what happens to Egypt. But these um, collections of instructions, they are there for a reason. They're there for a reason. The reason is this, the Passover needs to be remembered These festivals are here so that people will remember. So verse 2, it says that this month is to be the first month. The entire calendar year is going to be changed and reoriented so that Passover is at the beginning of it. Verse 14, it says this is a day you are to commemorate, that is remember. 
End of verse 17, celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance. Verse 25, when you enter the land, observe this ceremony. And then over the page, verse 42, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil, to honor the Lord for generations to come. Remember, remember, remember. That is the emphasis of this passage. The Passover is not just something that happened. It's something that has to be reenacted and memorialized forever. Why? Because if Israel forgets the Passover, they will forget who they are and they will not be who they should be. It needs to be drummed into them again and again what happened at the Passover. Otherwise, all of their distinctiveness as God's people will evaporate. And the same is true with Christians. Have you ever noticed that sometimes Christians are hypocritical? I'm sure none of you have noticed that. You know, Christians sometimes, they're not loving. Shocking, isn't it? Well, there's a bit of the Bible that helps to explain why. This is um, the Apostle Peter. Let me read this. For, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Why do Christians behave like idiots at times? Why are we not loving? Why do we don't seem to grow as much as we should? Because we forget. Because we forget. Sure, we hear the phrase, Jesus died for us, but it's like the meaning is kind of syringed out of it. It loses its power. You know, the drama of the Passover. Imagine being there. Imagine experiencing that, seeing the, the judgment on Egypt, the, the blood on the doors, the escape out of slavery. A greater drama has happened to every Christian in this room. We've been saved from eternal death. The Lord Jesus has died on the cross, bearing the judgment we deserve on him. We have been saved from slavery to life. Have we missed the drama? Have we forgotten This is what happens when Christians forget their rescue. They are not as lonely as they should be. They take it for granted. They forget that they are corrupted in and of themselves and that they needed the Son of God to die for them to be rescued. They start thinking they're better than other people. They forget how amazing God is. They don't serve other people out of gratitude. They start living a more selfish life. We must remember. Otherwise, we won't be who we should be. So in The Lion King, you know, The Lion King. I I watched The Lion King so many times as a child. I think I probably memorized most of the lines. I was watching some clips again, and it was all coming flooding back. I could kind of anticipate what was going to be said next. Well, there's that that, um, scene in The Lion King, isn't there? So Simba is in exile away from Pride Rock. His father, Mufasa, was killed in a coup by his evil uncle, Scar. Now Scar is kind of in control. Simba is miles away 
feeling shame. He blames himself for his father's death. He doesn't feel like he can go back to the kingdom, even though he is the rightful king. And then there's that moment, isn't there, where Mufasa, his father, reveals himself to Simba in the clouds in this kind of like godlike epiphany. And what does he say? He says, Simba, you've forgotten who you are and you've forgotten me. He tells Simba that he is the king, that he should go back. He should go and overthrow Scar and take rule. That's his rightful place. He says to Simba, remember who you are. And it's this reminder of his identity that gives him the motivation to then go and take his rightful place and restore peace to the savannah. We as Christians need to remember who we are. We are blood-bought. We've been adopted into God's family because the Passover lamb was slain for us. Jesus has died in our place. When we remember that, we will live as we should live. Have you forgotten? Is the cross dull to you, Christian friend? We must remember. And Jesus, in his grace, has given us One means of remembering, a key means, the Lord's Supper. That is our equivalent of the Passover festival. It makes the cross vivid. We're to take it in remembrance of him. We'll be doing that in a couple of weeks' time. There are lots of ways in which we can remind each other of this good news. And just finally, you know, if we feel convicted about our ineffectiveness, there is hope for us when we feel like we've not been the Christians we should be. We see Jesus' death afresh and we see again, yes, his blood covers even those failings as well. We can receive him afresh. All our ineffectiveness, it can be covered. We don't need to feel shamed. And of course, the invite is to all those who wouldn't call themselves Christians either. There is blood available for you. You can receive forgiveness. Jesus has offered himself to you. You can be rescued from death to eternal life. It's the most glorious message. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you gave us your firstborn son, that you delivered him up to death so that we could be brought back to you, away from death to life, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to remember what you've done through Jesus. Where the gospel message has become uh, rote and stale, we pray that it would be freshened, made alive, that you'd make change in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we, we see you in your greatness, and we give you great thanks and praise. Amen.